Hello, Cincinnati. My name is Luke, an alcoholic. And I don't drink no matter what. So, with that, I'll pass, okay? <laughs> well, all right, there's a little more to it than that. Get rolling with a couple of stories. This guy comes to work on a Monday and at lunchtime unpacks his lunch and says, Ugh, stale rye bread and dried up bologna. Tuesday, lunchtime. Ugh, stale rye bread and dried up bologna. Wednesday, same thing. Thursday, ugh. And a guy says, whoa, 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 wait, wait. Why don't you ask your wife to pack you something else for lunch? And the first guy said, what do you mean? I packed my own lunch. Then there was this guy who was trying to check into the gates of glory, and um, just for a bit of fun, God said to him, Did you enjoy yourself down there? And the fellow said, um, I guess I'd better tell you the truth. Um, I was an alcoholic, and most of the time it seemed like hell, and it was really pretty rough. And God said, huh, If that's the way you feel about it, maybe you ought to go back and try it again, because with an attitude like that, you're going to spoil it up here for the rest of us. So let me say right at the beginning, I love being an alcoholic. I love my alcoholism. I wouldn't have missed this for anything. I wouldn't have signed up for it, that's for sure. But I am enjoying it, in case anyone's listening. The old time when the program told me, tell the truth first time out, that way you don't have to remember what you said. And I did tell you that right at the beginning. When I tell you I'm alcoholic, I mean that I am a perfectionist. Hypersensitive, romantic dreamer, an idealist, a liar, a cheat, and a thief. Not a nice kitty cat. I mean, I was never satisfied with you or me or anything on life's terms. I always wanted something more or different. And when I got it, it wasn't enough or the right thing. When I tell you I'm alcoholic, I mean I always felt like I'd been dropped off on this planet by an alien spaceship and my main mission was to hitch a ride home with the help of booze. Then when I get to AA, I find out that spaceship dropped off a whole load of us. And I find that comforting. I mean I've been stomping angrily through life like a bewildered caveman ready to club the next person who crossed me. I mean that years before I ever took a drink, I was out of focus, not in touch with the tower, off the top of the Empire State Building and thinking, so far so good. I mean that rather than live in the now, I daydream and spin my wheels about what could, should, or might have been. Life would surely start some other time, today couldn't have been it. When I tell you I'm alcoholic, I mean I'm childish and in sore need of growing up. And it's lucky for me that AA is not adults only. I don't even have to be accompanied by an adult. I mean that probably the healthiest thing I could say to you is that I need to ask your help with this, that, or whatever it may be. And perhaps the sickest thing I could tell you is that I'm okay. 
In fact, I make a, a special point not to use that F word around FA, around AA. I, I don't tell you I'm fine. To me, that's, that's just not saying anything. And I avoid that. I mean, I don't know the meaning of the word enough. That I can hardly picture life without alcohol. That I am an extreme example of self-will run riot. That I am a victim of the delusion that I can wrest happiness and satisfaction from life if only I somehow manage well. When I tell you I'm alcoholic, I mean that I am a dipsomaniac, a person with an abnormal, insatiable craving for booze, that when I take any alcohol whatever into my system, something happens, both in the bodily and mental sense that makes it virtually impossible for me to stop. And I go for service. So, as I said at the beginning, I don't drink no matter what. Now I tell you all this for a very specific reason. Not to beat myself up about it, but because I believe this is my greatest treasure. It was by this path and only this path that I got caught in the web of mercy. That God came out to meet me through my alcoholism. And it was in this way my best break, my strongest blessing, that the grace of God has been revealed to me in capital letters and in spades. I believe that God loves me best in this, in my woundedness, in my confusion, in my brokenness. This is solid gold for me today, and that's why I can love it. Hannaford Hall has been on my calendar for a great many months now. Denny Westfeld, God's agent in making this happen, I'm truly thankful to you, Denny. And to be here tonight with you is some tremendous privilege that I, I've been eager for. And looking around the room, I see so many of you who have been down to my home in the bluegrass. It's, it's like old home week in many respects to repay this visit here um, in the Queen City. is the least I could do to stay sober today, and uh, it's a privilege, believe me. In this talk tonight, I would like to try to make clear just three pertinent ideas. A, that I am alcoholic and cannot manage my own life. B, that probably no human power could have relieved my alcoholism. And C, that God could and would if he were sought. Now, if that sounds familiar, and I hope that it does, <laughs> that's only to suggest that I believe it is all one story. It's not about my personal pain, my private struggle, or my suffering. No. It's about the human condition. It's about addiction, attachment, and my particular version of it. And so I do believe it is a great story. And that whenever we gather to hear anyone's version of this story, we are no longer separate and distinct entities. But rather, our energies converge are joined and are healed by gatherings like this. And I believe that we are never more family than when we gather to hear this one story. So let's cut to the chase here. My life, my alcoholism, my sobriety, and other unfinished business. I was born in New York City, and those were my two first resentments. You surely don't need to be a Bronx Irish Catholic to get into this club, but it does seem to give people like me a running head start. 
you know where three or four Catholics are gathered, there's going to be a fifth. <laughs> and the reason we Catholics drink ourselves into alcoholism is mainly to prove that we are not Baptists or Methodists. I believe I was born with a longing for God, a yearning for wholeness and completion, a hunger to love and to be loved. This spiritual desire is the origin of my highest hopes and noblest dreams. When I was a child, everything was just spiritual, simply religious. I had a clear relationship with God, understood him, my creator, father, savior, paraclete, and I, child of this love. I took great delight in this simple consciousness. But before long, something, I'm not sure what, worldly clamors, mostly those within myself, got in the way. And I decided not to want so much. Subtly and unknowingly, I dispensed with God and would just have to go in all myself. And so I would like to suggest this evening, my friends, that I have been an addict from my earliest time, and that's to say that the energy of my deepest longing was confused and misplaced from God on to other specific behaviors and later on to substances. I became all caught up with recognition, achievement, success, power and control, being liked. I think that was probably my greatest preoccupation and I gave that tremendous energy. I was like a chameleon. Anything I thought I needed to do or become or to say to make you like me, I would try to do that. This gets very confusing when you're around Republicans and Democrats at the same time. I am, of course, a lifelong Catholic and um, from my earliest years I wanted a place in that community of faith that remembered, retold, and celebrated the great story of redemption. I always loved learning about Jesus from the priests and nuns. My family is well sprinkled with priests and nuns, and I always thought that they were the finest people in the world, and I wanted what they had for as long as I can remember. Someone asked me once, what was your second choice? There wasn't any. But at the same time, I was torn, as if between some kind of public self, performing, achieving, and so forth, and I didn't do badly, mind you, and a private self that was just terrified and bewildered. I know I disdained people who ever asked for help of any kind. This Lone Ranger was just going to have to do it alone. And I understand today, or I suppose, that that was probably the source of my greatest fear, knowing that I was counting on self-reliance and that I was separated from my true source of power, the life of God and the spirit in me, that I was not in communion with that in my private self. It seemed like people liked each other better than they did me, and I had to keep this secret. 
my sense of coping was, don't rock the boat. Don't talk about your problems. They're not going to be interested and they only are going to think you deserve them anyhow. Keep it quiet. And that's what I did. As locked up and covered over as King Tut's tomb. And so I went on in this way. I can remember um, my eighth grade teacher, Sister Frances, um, saying to me, you missed the canoe. And she told me that many times. And I would just like to say tonight, Franny, wherever you are, if you only knew, nothing could be closer to the truth. I was never around abusive drinking, certainly not in my home. That just didn't ever happen. Until the summer of my 15th year in the Catskill Mountains in New York State, the drinking age at that time was 18, so it made people around my age, uh, made it easy for them to get this stuff. And I was horrified at the change that would come over these persons by night. Those whom I knew in the day, under the influence of alcohol, carrying on, doing terrible things, tying people to trees. (laughs) I was determined that that would never happen to me. And I left that job. See, I always had a solution. I quit. (laughs) When the going gets rough, I just avoid it. I go away. I was very grandiose, fragile ego, but had tremendous plans for later on, see. Determined that I would have a life in the church, and I figured for someone with my concentration and energy, I would naturally go on to be the Pope. (laughs) I mean, that's the top job, isn't it? And I had it all worked out in an elaborate fantasy. I would move the entire operation to the bank. (laughs) See, that way I could keep up with the Yankees and also go to the Metropolitan Opera whenever I wished, and around New York City, I would be noticed. And I wanted that. In my high school yearbook, I didn't think of writing under ambition to get dead drunk as often as possible, to stagger into AA after 20 years, and then to come to meetings for the rest of my life. That just didn't cross my mind at the time, but that's about what happened. I was off to college. It was the late 60s. They say if you can remember the late 60s, you couldn't have been there. Mind you, to this time, I was very virtuous. I had never messed with anyone or anything. My first semester out, just my usual star term, dean's team, honors, and all of that. But it wasn't long afterwards when something happened. And what I'm referring to, of course, is my first significant contact with alcohol. Somebody handed me that first drink. Well, that stuff went down. Hit my stomach. That tightness eased for the first time. That warmth spread out, and I was amazed before I was halfway through. I had a new freedom and a new happiness. I did not regret the past or wish to shut the door on it. I could comprehend the worst of energy, and I finally knew peace. <laughs> oh, yes, the false promises. <laughs> This, of course, was a trick that alcohol played on me. I thought I was home. I thought I had found the solution to all my troubles. And I said, I don't ever want to be without this stuff again. The alcoholic life quickly became the only normal one for me. I could no longer differentiate the true from the false. I was completely preoccupied with how, where, and when I could get it again. Needless to say, I never made the dean's list again either. 
my buddies formed a little drinking society. And uh, I can remember Strange writing to a friend of mine, a high school friend, and telling her something I don't think I intended to say about this new romance because she sent me a membership card to Alcoholics Anonymous <laughs> in 1969. <laughs> yeah, it says, uh, I, Luke Edwin Armour, realize the full responsibility of being another college spot and love every minute of it. It is for this reason that I prefer to remain to parents and friends an anonymous alcoholic. I kept this thing for 20 years. I must have known it was going to come in handy. At the age of 20, I became Brother Luke. This was outside of Boston, Massachusetts, in a beautiful priory, a religious order. I received a magnificent white robe, and come to think of it, I looked a little like the Pope. <laughs> and I thought, this is finally it. This is something of fulfillment of my life's dreams. Clergyman, this is it now. I began my studies for the priesthood and some um, basic ministry, visiting hospitals, teaching catechism, visiting jails, and I thought I had arrived. This, this was it now. My, my life was opening up before me. It was wonderful. But when you get right down to it, I'd rather be drinking beer instead. And um, at recreation times, Friday nights or whenever, uh, I would always be the first one there and would stay till the last shot was fired. This kind of thing gets noticed after a while, of course. And it wasn't too many months before a group of my peers brought me before the superior in, I guess, what would amount to a, uh, an intervention, the closest I ever came to it. Of course, I was shocked and astonished who me. And they said uh, a number of things that I had to recognize were true, but I'm a rationalizer and a justifier too, and um, full of excuses, like, uh, oh yeah, that's right, I couldn't make it then, uh, my mother had to have a vasectomy. <laughs> well, the reason I wasn't there that time was the cat was having kittens and I was her coach in the Lamaze methods. I just drink to steady my nerves. And they said, yeah, but you are getting so steady, you can hardly move. You are getting so laid back, you are ready to topple over. <laughs> I got out of it, and a good deal more besides. And the point is, I think, people will let me off the hook, have let me off the hook, but alcohol never did. It was as if I had Harry Houdini for my spiritual director during those years, some great escapes. Kind of. It wasn't long, of course, before I became so restless, irritable, and discontent with the environment, the others obviously were my problem, of course, that I felt the change was necessary in my geographics. And um, this was painful for me to realize at first, but today it just makes perfect sense. It seems like textbook to me. I came to the heart of Kentucky. This was in 1972, to the Abbey of Gethsemane. The writings of Thomas Merton, a monk of that monastery and a world-renowned author, I suppose, had drawn me there. And the first time that I laid eyes on that beautiful place, so many of you have been there, you know what I'm referring to, I thought, now this is it. This is it, yeah. As a refuge from booze, I, I wasn't able to articulate that, but of course they don't serve drinks in Trappist monasteries. By some fantastic work of God, 
I can tell you tonight, my friends, that I have been a Trappist monk for 22 years, and that is something that could only be grace upon grace, really, because I did everything I possibly could to torpedo it and to ruin it all. But God hasn't let that happen. A monk, you might know, is a man called by God to live the Christ life in the new creation in a radical and uncompromising manner. There's a beautiful portal there with a stone saying out front of the monastery, God alone. And nothing else makes sense there. Nothing else fits. I love that life more every day. I've always loved it. Probably just starting out in some ways now, however. And that's, that's acceptable to me. That sounds truthful. I didn't do badly for a while, of course, faking it. How do you spell fake? L-U-K-E. And I could manage. But it wasn't long before those others, again, that, that egoism of mine that wants to project it out there and, and avoid looking at myself at all costs became really very troubled by, by some persons there. And um, what happened briefly was this. Um, I found this described in our book, The Twelve and Twelve. Dependent, dominant personality that I am, I came to count on certain members of the community there, persons whom I regarded as more experienced in the ways of the spirit, to kind of shepherd me along. See, I had already goofed up in one religious congregation. I wanted to make it in this one. So I thought this would be the way to go. But this kind of thing quickly becomes unworkable, as you know, and it wasn't long before I realized I was under people's thumbs and no longer free to be anything near like my own person, so that I rebelled vociferously and frequently, and the dominant dimension of my personality made life as miserable as I possibly could for them, and of course for myself also. And it was, it was a bitter and terrible business, I can tell you. That's hardly what monastic life is about. I can remember lying on my bed in a rage. How can I get back? How can I retaliate? How can I even the score? Eight years went by and I did not abuse alcohol. I was, of course, by no means sober. I was, I was really nuts. <laughs> but the time came in 1981 when Father Abbott, the superior of the community, appointed me to the infirmary, that place in the monastery where the senior monks are cared for, those whose faithfulness made the place for me and the others to live. And uh, I was very pleased with this responsibility. And on the very first day, it was strange, a uh, brother was taking me around, showing me the ropes and the whereabouts, and here's the, here are the crutches, here are the, here's some wheelchairs, and here's some bandages, and uh, here's a whole closet full of altar wine. And I thought, well, this isn't going to be so bad. And I asked, where's the bourbon? Huh. You know, in case of snake bite or cardiac arrest. And he showed me there uh, in the pharmacy where that was. And uh, we toasted my service there on that very first day. And I would like to say from that that I betrayed the trust that was placed in me from that very start. Sick brothers have to be taken to doctor's seat. And I was on the road then for the very first time in, in uh, eight years. And I hardly need to tell you that I used those trips to procure booze. Clever, wasn't it? I can remember thinking, this has got to stop. This just does not fit here. 
sneaking around under cover of night like some phantom of the opera? Well, what what quit, what ended was the resolutions. <laughs> oh, in a month or when that bottle's done. No, that just that just went by the boards. I forgot about that. And I was bizarre. That's uh, an intensely painful double life. I had made it a point of honor, of course, that I would not touch anything that did not belong to me in the pharmacy. But as my alcoholism progressed and I deteriorated in every way, uh, I forgot about that too. And I did sample some of those chemicals for a period of about two months. And that was breathtaking, let me tell you. I would come into prayers and I'd play music, see. So I would come in like a zombie and, and I would kind of fall all over the keys at the organ. Or I would strike up the band and wonder why nobody was singing because I wasn't even on the right page or the right day. And that kind of thing gets noticed, you know. So one day Father Abbott came to the mon- to the infirmary and uh, fired me. And uh, he could have easily have packed me off to treatment and, and some kind of rubber room someplace. That didn't happen. What did happen was kind of interesting. He made me the guest master there. And um, that is the retreat house where I had the opportunity to meet so many of you. It wasn't as if God was setting the stage for my sobriety because AA members come there literally from all over America as if, um, as I said to you last week, Matt, there's some strange magnet out at the end of that driveway that pulls them in. It's fantastic. So I'm meeting you now and um, I'm charmed. I've never met people like you before. The masks are down. You're very upfront. This is, this is strange for me. But I've got a secret and I don't want what you have. So I've got to be kind of cagey about this. But I can't help thinking that we might often be carrying the message to the least uh, person that we suspect. In my case, that certainly was true. What can I tell you about um, eight or nine years of desperation, bewilderment? It was, it was a terrible, miserable time. I can remember one time when we were, I'd, I'd gotten dead drunk and had fallen hard on the terrazzo floor in my room and had this magnificent blue forehead as a trophy for that and uh, it's since come to my attention of course that alcoholics die in instances much like that well the next day we're having our first open house in 140 years and I had to greet a thousand people (laughs) not me personally but I had to be one of them and you know they're so nosy they ask well what happened to you And I had to be kind of creative about that, as you can imagine. The thing about booze was I feel like it opened up my psyche to avenues of creativity that I did not have otherwise, that my sober brain was denied. And another time I want you to know that um, I composed this letter under the influence and sent it into Newsweek magazine and got it right in. Published this piece that is kind of witty in a way, but it's also off the wall. And uh, I mention that because uh, not too long ago I sent another article into the grapevine and I got this letter back that said, well, good try, but don't hold your breath on that one. (laughs) I sort of hope they don't use it. (laughs) There was another time when we were having uh, the opening of the new guest house and uh, I was asked to take care of some dignitaries who were coming there. And I agreed to that. They said, you'd be at such and such a gate at such and such a time. And uh, I said, I would. And sure enough, this big car pulled up. And I stepped up and I said, how do you do, Mrs. Kennedy? So nice to see you at Gethsemane today. 
and I took her and members of her family around for the day, and uh, it was nice. And of course, in between, we had this rip-roaring party where I had to sort of slip off for a while. And uh, then when they were leaving, I said, Ethel, baby! <laughs> See, I thought we had struck up this new and exciting friendship, but let me tell you, Ethel has not kept in touch. <laughs> Probably none of you were obnoxious when you drank, but I still kind of cringe a little over Ethel, baby. So it was something like that anyway. Let me cut to the chase again and move it up to the 11th day, the 11th month, and for me, the 11th hour in 1989, my sobriety date, November 11th, five years and a month ago, I guess. The sublime grace of God separated me from what I hope is my last drink of alcohol. It was like a scalpel, really. Unexpected, unsought, and certainly unwanted. And yet I knew it was over. I stood at the turning point. I realized I had but two alternatives. One was to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of my intolerable situation as best as I could, and the other was to ask for help. This time I went for the help. And I sought out Father Abbott that, that very same night, and uh, he'd been waiting for me for years, of course. And he didn't beat me up for being human, and certainly not for being alcoholic. We worked together. He said, what do you want to do? And, and we worked out a way of approaching this. Uh, briefly, I agreed to going off to a, a clergy treatment center in Washington, D.C., and I remember sending Mark a, a cryptic little postcard about that, how I was going off for a workshop in midlife issues or something. <laughs> and I got to this place, and it was like a, a middle-aged frat house, all these fathers and brothers sitting around second-guessing me and saying, you'll be back. And of course, I was in no position to uh, contradict them, but it was a time of high anxiety for me. I can remember thinking, oh, hell, this is going to change everything. And today, of course, that is exactly what I want from top to toe. The remarkable thing happened. Um, these people, these professionals said to me, go home, get to AA, Dig in 90 meetings in 90 days. If you ever drink again, you'll have to come back here and uh, be reevaluated. And um, I haven't been back. I got to AA. And let me say, right at the start, what I said to you a couple of minutes ago about booze I don't ever want to be without this stuff again. AA is what I've been looking for all my life, never realized it. Yeah. I couldn't imagine that you people really had anything for me, after all. It seemed like everybody was named Clem or Martha down there in Kentucky. And I would just go for a while until Father Abbott calmed down and, and we could just forget all about this. I wasn't going to drink again, but AA, not likely. The surprising thing happened, however, I got caught up in it. I never heard people talk like you, as I said. It seemed like the vocal cords were connected to the heartstrings, like a new language. It could have been Swedish or Swahili as far as I was aware, but I was charmed, I was attracted, and, and something was going on in here. I couldn't figure out what exactly, but I stuck around long enough to get into the meeting habit. And these meetings are my lifeline today. They're my medicine, my allergy shots. I attend regularly. Um, they couldn't keep me home. My oases. 
Sobriety is contagious in these rooms, of course. And I figure if I keep coming around, I'm going to catch some. Some of the symptoms of, as I understand it, the ability to live in the present moment finally and to enjoy it. A loss of interest in what others are doing or saying. A loss of worry. An increased susceptibility to the love of others and the desire to return it. And I really do want this. So the meeting habit and the openness habit gradually, over time, not right away. I was an outsider, of course. It seemed like all of you were so well connected, and I wasn't. I was a separate entity, distinct again. But gradually and over time, I was able to weave my way in and find a place. It seemed to me after a while that I needed to find out what was going on here. And no one bullied me, of course. No one rushed me. I think that any, if anyone had tried to, I would just have said, Sayonara, I knew this wasn't for me anyway, and I would have gone back to the monastery. You never would have seen me again. But that didn't happen. The Spirit took the lead, and I figured I needed to pick up this book. I'm an avid reader. This is the AA text. And I thought, yeah, I've got to crack this open and find out what goes here. And uh, this book is truly good news for me. I read it every day. Hardly, hardly begun to see what it contains, and, and I'm always really um, amazed and delighted with how much more I can learn from it. This book does carry good news for me, and I'm sold on all of its ideas. Of course, it introduced me to the program, the 12 Steps of AA, these principles, spiritual in nature, which if I practice as a way of life can expel my obsession to drink and enable me to live happily and usefully whole. I thought, yeah, yeah, not to give this a shot would be like having the key to Fort Knox hanging over there on a hook and not, never picking it up. So I did. I kind of, kind of gave it lip service. Gave it a try, gave it a try. What could this be about, my admitting that I am powerless over alcohol, that I'm out of gas, I'm defeated, I'm shot? Oh, this couldn't be. That, that just kills me, to concede to my innermost self that I can't do it. This did not put me in a very jolly frame of mind. <laughs> that my life was unmanageable. There seemed to be enough evidence by that, but even that was uh, a very unpleasant realization for me. I believe it's in Bill's story, of course, where he says, um, of myself I am nothing, without God I am lost, and, and that does seem to make sense for me. The real power is God in action. And so, this is truly my first step toward liberation and strength when I admit that I am completely out of power and shot and down for the count, that alcohol is my master. I try to keep this first step fresh, current, and 100%. Five years later, my reasons for admitting I'm powerless over alcohol are not the same as they were back in 1989, and I do not want to forget, remember, cunning, baffling, and powerful. Yeah. So I keep, I keep current on this one as best as I can. Coming to believe, now I'm in a dilemma. What have I been doing? I've been a clergyman for decades now. What have I been up to all this time? Well, I'll tell you. Showboat, chicanery, just going through the moves, costumes, lights, music. You mean it was supposed to change my life? I never made those connections. It was as if the 
religious sphere, and of course I, I have just a head full of religion and dogma and training and catechism. It wasn't as if that had given me something of a map for my spiritual journey, but I, I never took the trip. <laughs> I mean, I was doing all these other things. <laughs> Why be bothered? It was only in this program of recovery that I began to sense that I could make the, make the journey with you in the spirit. So I asked God to increase my faith daily in taking this second step. And I realize as I come to believe that involves a whole lot of incongruity. What I think doesn't belong on my list has a tailor-made place for me in my spiritual growth and in my salvation history. Yeah, and it's all good. Turning my will and my life over to the care of God opens a, a door to a new mind and a new relationship with the Creator for me. I'm stuck in me. I'm in the bondage of self, as the prayer says. And I don't want that anymore. I was sick for as long as I needed to be. I don't want to be separate. I want to be connected with the power now. So I make this prayer frequently through my day, offer my will and my life. I want to bear witness to his power, to his love. It's all about mercy, I'm sure. It's a positioning exercise as I understand it. I'm the drunk. He's the creator and savior. And when I sincerely take such a position, all sorts of remarkable things follow. I have a new employer. Being all-powerful, he provides my needs as long as I keep close to him and perform his work well. Little by little, I lose interest in my plans and projects. More and more, I become interested in what I can contribute. I am reborn. My fears fall away. I begin to sense a new power flowing in. A new basis of trusting and relying on God. And my self-reliance can go by the boards now. This, of course, was the setting for me to live in the care of God, to take a look at myself finally in my inventory steps. I wanted to do this about as much as I wanted to walk to the moon. <laughs> but I'll tell you, it was in my first... I believe it was around nine months that I, I did my first fourth step because I couldn't stand the pain of untreated alcoholism. I was going to drink again, I, I suppose, um, being that dry and, uh, and that ornery still. I had to dig in. And so I, I made those lists as the book suggests. And I see this promise that I can face and be rid of those things that are blocking me. I don't want to be separate from you. That separates me from God. I want to get rid of this. I want to face this. My grudge list was pretty impressive. But what I thought were the causes were, of course, all this exteriorizing. Uh, my victim self had been, you know, mistreated. Uh, how, how could you have possibly done this to the future Pope? How it affected me, my pride, my ambition, clear, my self-esteem, what my part in it was, selfish, self-centered, dishonest, all became very clear to me. And I saw that that first column was a lie, that it was never about you. And this was a tremendous liberation for me. Why did I have these fears? Because I'd been counting on myself all of this time. I listed those fears. My sex conduct, whom had I harmed? Yes. I went to my confessor soon after this right away in fact and, and took my first fifth step at that time Christmas lights became began to glow for me at that time and I felt that I had finally taken my seat in AA that I was no longer just a visitor because I had laid my cards on the table at least as best as I could at that time 
and things began to change. I began to have a spiritual experience, I think. Since that time, I might say that um, I thought I could put my pencil down. It says, made all searching and fearless moral inventory. Oh, that's not good enough for me. And um, I had to pick up that pencil again and know that put it on paper, as the book says, there's tremendous energy, growth, and freedom in that as I continue to list my grudge lists, my fears, and so forth, and, and bring them to my sponsor now. All new, all new again, all freshened up. I don't do this to create some beautiful new me. No, but only to be of maximum service to God and to his people, to let him demonstrate through me what he can do. That's why I can have the courage and the faith to continue to take these inventories, because it's not some morbid, self-directed deal, no. My sixth and seventh steps, these are very mysterious to me, and of course I don't have any of this figured out, mind you. The day I do, I probably will also be able to tell you why Elizabeth Taylor wears white at her various weddings. But God works slow. He's real old, you know. But I'm very liberal about this. I ask him, I ask him to take from me all that stands in the way of my usefulness. I don't know what exactly that may be exactly. What character defects might be useful to you? But I do, I do uh, use this sixth and seventh in a persistent and uh, faithful way. My feeling, my sense is that if my character defects were present in the same way as they were when I first came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I probably wouldn't be sober today. But I don't have a clear pulse on this, and I don't really try to take it. By my amend steps, I am mended. I have done these to some degree. I'm certainly not finished. Maybe I could be finished sometime, but I don't know when that would be. I did it as best as I could. I went to persons mostly in, within the community, scarcely anyone else had seen me for those years of my drinking, said uh, that I needed to clear my side of the street, that I would never get over drinking until I paid back for what I owe you, for the hurt that I caused you. And I did get some, some good feedback from that. At three years sober, uh, Father Timothy, the abbot, gave me the opportunity to address all the monks at once. And so I used that to make my amends to the community. A wonderful old fellow, uh, Father Matthew, came up to me afterwards and said, Son, they all understood. Yeah. I have to tell you, however, there was one really precious resentment that I held on to. Because the guy got me better than I ever got him, if you know what I mean. And I wouldn't let go. But these things do come out, especially when we're talking with program members. And I was taking a hike with uh, an AA fellow from Akron, Ohio. Good guy, and uh, I trust him. And and in that atmosphere of trust and love, uh, this came out. And and he held up a mirror to me and showed me that I had this resentment. It wasn't actually that way exactly. He did it it the Akron way. It was one hand on shoulder like this, and another hand like this. And that was a gift because I needed it. I went and made that amends that very day. And it was wonderful. It was wonderful. But it wasn't going to happen a minute before. That's, that's for sure. 
I continue to take personal inventory. It's hard for me to admit I'm wrong, but it happens all the time. And I need to continue to face this truth, and I enjoy it, actually. In this 10th step, I can learn to take light things seriously and serious things lightly. I've got to be traveling light on my journey to the kingdom anymore. Anything old, useless, bulky, obsolete in my knapsack has got to go. And this 10th step is one way that um, works for me in doing this. I do it, of course, on the spot. I can tell when I'm out of sync, when I have imposed my old self again. I do it in a nightly way as I lie on my cot before I drift off. I do it in speaking with my sponsor. And uh, this has been working well for me. Prayer and meditation. Hmm. Just got started this morning. Just running a notch above empty on the best of days. I ask God to direct my thinking, to show me the next right deed. Save me from being angry. You know, I've been attending prayers, it seems, since God created the world. I've been joining at prayer. Um, but but the, the true inner transformation that I believe is the, my deeper invitation into sobriety, this, this is the seedbed. Prayer and meditation is where it's going to happen for me. In my prayer, I try to drop just below my usual world of concerns, worries, projects, whatnot, and live in that ocean of peace, love, and mercy where God holds me in his care. And that does make a difference when I get back into the arena of life. I'll tell you this little story about prayer real quickly. God and St. Peter get together at the beginning of a work day and God says as if he didn't know what kind of a day is it going to be, Pete? And uh, Peter said, it's going to be kind of busy. There's about a billion people down there asking for different partners and then there's another different billion people asking for different jobs and then there's about mm, three billion people asking for this, that, and the other thing. But there's one guy down there in Cincinnati, Ohio who's going... Thank you, thank you, thank you. And God said, give him anything he wants. <laughs> I believe that the grateful heart can't en- entertain any postures anymore. Love alone matters. Prayer is the great springboard for me in entering that world of love time after time. I never feel more alive than when carrying this message, and I'll tell the world what God has done for me. This is one way of doing it, of course, and I, I, take, I take great pleasure and delight in being able to come here to Hannaford Hall tonight and be with you. I think in many ways, of course, it's, it's the least of it. Anybody could get up here, tie a few sentences together, try to tell you what they're doing as best as they can, and, and hope that it's for real as, as much as a liar as I can make it, you know. But I have an idea that until this message translates moves down to my two big feet, it's only word deep. Until I practice these principles in all my affairs, I'm still just play acting. So that's the real heart of the 12th step for me as I understand it, getting into that action, living my life in a way that is consonant with sobriety and, that's to say, transformation of life. 
to let God have his way with me for the very first time. As a result of these steps, my friends, I love my life today on every level. I love everything that happens to me. I love every person who comes into my sphere and I try to let them know that they are loved. The central fact of my life today is the absolute certainty, and I don't have too many of those, that the Creator has entered into my heart and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. Miracles as I understand them are only God's ordinary work which I'm finally beginning to notice. In these five years, I try to take responsibility for my life and say that it is about me. I try to name, claim, and own what goes with me. There's still so much more to be revealed. It's, it's eminently clear to me that I have barely scratched the surface in this. And I like that. I'm not ready for any Lifetime Achievement Award in this program, no. Only just begun. And uh, if I became some kind of expert, I would find that scary. Um, that, that isn't what I'm aiming for at all, at all. I packed my own lunch, all right. But God has dished up the most sumptuous supper imaginable for me. And I wouldn't have missed this for anything. It is also very beautiful and so gifted. I know that it could have only been in the great, unspeakable, ineffable plan of God for me. It's just wonderful. Sugar Daddy down in Texas says to his 22-year-old, Honey, if I were to lose all my millions, would you still love me? She said, Yeah, I'd still love you, but I'd sure as hell miss you. I leave my love for each of you here in Cincinnati, Ohio. I take your love for me, which you have so kindly poured out, back to the beautiful bluegrass state of Kentucky, and I'll spread it around down there, okay? This last little bit, a few lines from the poem Pucks by D.H. Lawrence. All that matters is to be one with the living God, to be a creature in the house of the God of life. Like a cat asleep on a chair, at peace, in peace, and at one with the master of the house, with the mistress at home. At home in the house of the living, sleeping on the hearth and yawning before the fire. I am at one and at home with the God who guides my sober days. Thank you so much for listening to this. God bless all of you and don't drink no matter what. (laughs) 